The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? When China brokered a historic detente between Saudi Arabia and Iran earlier this year, it seemed that a new phase in world history, and certainly in Chinese foreign policy, had opened up. Instead of the US being a policeman of the world, it was the rising power, China, that was stepping into that role. Whereas Chinese foreign policy had previously only really cared about promoting trade and silencing dissidents, it seemed that perhaps now Beijing was taking a much more leadership role in global diplomacy and security issues. And yet the events of the last week and China's response to them have shown that perhaps the country isn't ready for that responsibility just yet. In answer to the horrors unfolding in Israel and later in Gaza, Beijing has only given lukewarm statements, calling for, and I quote, relevant parties to remain calm, exercise restraint and immediately end the hostilities to protect civilians. End quote. At no point has it condemned Hamas by name. So what does this mean for China's grander ambitions in the Middle East? With me to discuss is Tuvia Goering. During peacetime, he works as a researcher on China and the Middle East with the Israeli think tank, the Institute for National Security Studies. And he's also a non-resident fellow in the Atlantic Council. But in the last week, as with all Israelis, his life has been changed forever. He is now being called up for active duty, from which he joins the podcast. What you're about to hear is an incredibly well-informed but raw contribution from an expert whose research interests have come crashing into his real life. He tells me that he is very tired and has slept little in the last week. Here was our conversation from Monday morning, just over a week after Hamas initially attacked. So, Tuvia, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Now, this is a bit of a first for this podcast because I'm speaking to you while you're on active duty in Israel. Not long ago, your full-time job was just foreign policy researcher with an independent think tank in Tel Aviv, looking at China's role in the Middle East. But now you have been called up. Tell us about what this last week has been like. Yes, thank you for calling me. And first, I need to emphasize I'm talking to you here as a civilian. I needed to remove my military hat for just this period of this interview. But I don't think it really matters now. The whole home front are now in battle. There is a famous saying by Ben Gurion, our prime minister of the first, that uh, the entire nation is an army and the entire country is a battlefield. And we've been seeing this here and the world has finally opened its eyes because Israel has been targeted by rockets from Gaza and from Lebanon, from Syria for over 22, 23 years, depending on how you count. And this terrorism that we've been warning the world and telling them that we're dealing with a terrorist organization, they broadcasted everything for the world to see. This was the first massacre on TikTok. And the horror stories and the visions of hell uh, we've been hearing nonstop. 
Everyone I know lost someone. Someone I work with, she, on the first day, she lost three of her friends at the rave party for peace, which turned into a massacre. They were murdered almost on the spot, and the fourth was kidnapped to Gaza. And only later did she find that she, her body was also found. And I remember a father of an eight-year-old who was abducted. When he heard the news that she was dead, he cried in joy because he said that there are much more worse things than death. So I'll spare you the rest of the details. And I'm sure anyone is connected to the internet seen it, except for probably 1.4 billion people, which we can talk about. But yeah, this has been just a snippet of our week. I don't think anyone in a peaceful country can imagine what you have gone through in the last week. I'm sure listeners will be following developments closely, but today we're here to talk about the China response to it all. How would you characterize what Beijing's reaction has been? I describe it as the masks are off. I've been writing a lot about China's bias in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And even longer, I have this unhealthy habit of writing about Chinese anti-Semitism online. And believe me, I take no joy mm. in doing this kind of research, but I thought it was important to highlight how pervasive racist nationalism is in China. And it's not just on the fringes, it's going all the way to the top, talking Xi Jinping here. And when I said it just recently, I was chided and I was ridiculed by some, but I mean, the evidence is conclusive. I mean, you, you can see that anyone following my work, that uh, China as a state has been completely biased in favor of the Palestinians. They've been uh, always voting against us. They've been applying this kind of Jekyll and Hyde approach to Israel, where on a bilateral level, they're all friendly faces. And I think of the Chinese ambassador, Tsairu, to Israel. So he wrote uh, in January last year an uh, article for the People's Daily, the party mouthpiece, talking about the thousand years of friendship between the Jews and Israelis and the Chinese. Mm. And it's the 10th day of war now, and he didn't even speak even once. He didn't say anything. He did not empathize with Israeli suffering. Nothing. He's just probably hiding under his table in a bomb shelter like many hundreds of thousands of Israelis, those who are not evicted. And this is just the positive side. And then the negative side, they've been not just against us and voting against us, they've been co-sponsoring motions against Israel. And two years ago, when the last uh, conflict in, uh, between Israel and the Palestinians started, China was the revolving uh, president of the UN Security Council, and it convened five emergency meetings uh, with the uh, goal of criticizing Israel, and it even co-sponsored meetings and denunciations in the UN Human Rights Council. All, all the while, I've been sharing as much as I can some prominent anti-Semitic remarks by both Chinese diplomats and uh, thought leaders and intellectuals and influencers and celebrities. And I could never tell how pervasive it was because there has been no empirical study about uh, anti-Semitism in China. There was one, but the, mm. its methodology was shoddy back in 2014. 
So we, I was only left with the anecdotal evidence and a lot of anecdotal evidence, about 160 pages long folder I have on my computer, anecdotal evidence. But still, I could never say how pervasive it is. Um, I could only show that there are some really, really important people high up there, you know, like Wang Qishan uh, sharing a book called Currency Wars with all of his staff uh, that its main thesis is that the Jews control the global economy. But, you know, these, these are just anecdotes, right? But, but now I think we're witnessing the moral equivalent of the Three Gorges Dam just collapsing and flooding the entire information sphere with the most blatant and open and ugly anti-Semitism I've seen. Mm-hmm. It's a worldwide phenomenon. And from Sydney to Los Angeles, they chant gas the Jews. And in Berlin, they mark residentials where Jews live with the Star of David. And in China, too, it hasn't uh, skipped them. They've been through their cooperation with uh, Russian media. And we can talk about that as well. They've been echoing the most blatant anti-Semitic ideas you can come across. And I'm not even talking here about the terror that happened. And since the outset, I told everyone in writing, and some of it I shared on Twitter, but I told everyone that I know in writing, this is what China is going to do. This is what China is going to say. And lo and behold, they did exactly that. Like every single step to the letter. And it would be hilarious if it wasn't just so cruel. And why was I so sure about what China would do? It's because I have first-hand experience from Ukraine, just witnessing Chinese entire approach to Ukraine. And I think you covered it in Chinese Whispers a while ago. And there from the outset, China until today doesn't call the war, the Russian blatant invasion and violation of international law and any humanitarian law known to men, war. They call it a special military operation. And lo and behold, the same euphemisms now Mm -hmm. are used to describe Hamas terrorist attack. And again, I'm not surprised. I was just shocked how quickly it happened. And it didn't even take 24 hours for Chinese media to uh, start sharing through state accounts on Weibo. And then it became trending uh, conspiracy theories that originate in Iran, that Israel is committing war crimes while it is being invaded and violated by Hamas terrorists. All that's happening, and we're still trying to figure out what's happening and defending all of these kibbutzim and moshavim near the Gaza Strip that were invaded and people there were just butchered and slaughtered. And still, there were over 100 people kidnapped there, including Chinese citizens, uh, at least four of which were butchered. I got a video I, I swore I would never watch again um, of possibly a Chinese men, but at least that was uh, what was trending on Chinese media. It became viral before it was taken down, but it's shared. It's, I don't know if you remember when we were younger, all these ISIS videos shared in schools. And even then, I had the common sense not to watch these videos. Yeah. Uh, But now for my work, I had the pleasure of seeing the most horrendous things committed against someone they thought was 
doesn't matter, he wasn't Jewish, but they said in Arabic, which means you want to kill him as if he was Jewish with your soul. You want to kind of sense it. And then they just, they take the, the garden hoe and they do what they do. And mm. as we witness all this happening, again, everything by the letter is the exact reaction that China had with Ukraine, but now on speed, everything is just so much faster. It's first, it's belittling or first just completely ignoring the Israeli victims. Completely. There was a CCTV, Siwan Liambo, it's the most important news uh, show on uh, China's central television. So they did 30 minutes and they couldn't even show one Israeli casualty. Only, only one side is suffering, and that is Gaza, and that is the Palestinians. And they don't mention terror. They still don't, Then they won't, and I can assure you that. And it took them less than uh, another day for Chinese pundits, some of the best Middle East scholars that China has to offer, to write 2,000 character articles about how basically rationalizing this something that shouldn't be rationalized and excusing something the inexcusable by saying that Israel is doing this to the Palestinians and they're always holding uh, them under siege and they violated their rights and encroached on their lands and give this whole host of different reasons why babies should be beheaded or families burned or abducted. But uh, that's Chinese media for you. There's only one uh, note that played, and that uh, already decides for the rest. And I think there was a muscle memory for all the Chinese analysts and media seeing this, because they've been like the Pavlovian dog, conditioned to respond like this to an aggressor that is blatantly violating international law and humanitarian law and just human conscience. But there's a small issue that this aggressor is just on the right side of history in China's view. And because of that, you need to support the aggressor, whatever happens. And with Russia, it's pretty easy to understand because Russia shares a 4,000 kilometer border. It's an important anti-hegemonic partner anti-American, anti-Western, and it's a major source of energy and agriculture products. And it also shares Xi Jinping's view, his, Putin's his best and most intimate friend, the way they describe each other. They share a worldview, which they want to see uh, Western weaken, and they want to reform global governance. And we remember the agreement that they signed and a no-limit partnership. And since then, China has feigned to claim neutrality. So China had no qualms in throwing the Ukrainians under the bus as long as it meant that the bus is going to hit the Americans head on. And with Ukraine, we saw the conspiracy theories claiming that the U.S. and Ukraine have been developing bioweapons starting in Russian origin. And then the Bucha massacre was staged. And I'm sure enough, I just didn't have time because I'm actually working around the clock to defend my country. I'm sure that if uh, anyone hearing this could go online, just please send me a link where you see the Chinese military analysts, you know, the Song Jinping types, uh, saying that the Bucha massacre was staged and saying now how everything in this bloody massacre of uh, October 7th 
this Black Sabbath was staged because I can assure you that there's already videos circulating out there. Mm. And from then, it, it just got worse. Yeah. What do you put it down to? You you alluded just now to the Americans. As you say, China in bilateral relations with Israel seems relatively friendly. You know, China is Israel's third largest trading partner. Israel is China's second largest foreign supplier of arms. Is it all about America? Is it all about bashing America through a proxy, which is Israel? No, it's not just about bashing America. It's an important part, bashing America, but that's only one of the motivations. It all boils down to numbers game. And if you want to understand it, just look at the picture of Jai Jun, who's China's special envoy to Middle East affairs. He took it uh, with a host of almost 30 Arab diplomats. And seeing this picture with him and them, and they already condemning Israel as the aggressor, and he just needs his picture so he can Mm -hmm. smile and move on to another one. And it made me recall a 2017 article by another former diplomat, Yang Cheng, who's from Shanghai University. So he wrote in an article, a peer-reviewed article, that supporting Palestine is international political correctness. And there's only one country in the world that supports Israel, and its name is the United States. So for China, supporting the Palestinians, it one stone, you can kill six birds, at least. So first is the historic pledge of China to the Palestinians from the Bandung Conference in the 50s with this Asian-African coalition of the third world. And since then, it only got uh, worse during the Maoist era. But China, after reforming opening and after establishing relations with Israel 30 years ago, they still maintain their long-standing support, uh, which is nothing more than virtue signaling for the Palestinians. And I say this not as a biased Israeli, I say this from the Palestinian perspective, where China enjoys less than 30% approval because China has been doing nothing more than providing rhetoric. So that's one bird. The second is supporting the Palestinian is shows a united front with the Arab world. And lo and behold, uh, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, he spoke, Wang Yi uh, spoke with Iranian foreign minister, and he told him that China should work with the Arab world to create a united front and speak with one voice. And in another article by a very important Middle East analyst, so he added to that saying that this one voice is needed so the Middle East and the Arab world and the Palestinians will have more discourse power than Israel. Uh, So that's the second stone. And the third is the Muslim world, which is obvious, 57 countries of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation versus one Jewish state. And then the global south and the developing world. And then you have fifth is the anti-hegemonic forces. And then when you talk with the entire leftist community in the global south and even in Europe and the U.S., uh, this is a battle against colonialism and imperialism. And you still have people going in top schools in the U.S. justifying these terrorist attacks and massacres as decolonialization and part of the problem of Mm. U.S. and British uh, colonialization over the years. So this is just one of the reasons that China now unilaterally supports terrorists. And another important reason, uh, and we haven't talked about it, is what you referred to, the strategic competition with the U.S.-led West. And things have changed 
since 9-11. If you recall, that happened after the NATO bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade in 99. And that also ha happened before that there was the third Taiwan crisis and uh, China-US relations were really bad. And with 9-11 happening, Jiang Zemin picked up the phone to call Bush and that helped a bit this cooperation on countering terrorism. It, it alleviated some of the pressures and enabled to improve the relationship. And this example and others over the years, uh, for example, the US and China joining on sanctions on Iran uh, over a decade ago and joining to formulate a nuclear deal in 2015 with Iran has made the Chinese analysts describe the Middle East as a buffer zone, as a place where China and the US can cooperate to solve global challenges, even though they have acrimonious relationship, they can still cooperate in the Middle East. No longer. The Middle East is now is an arena between the major powers. And I'll be the last one to say this. This uh, Cold War framing, uh, which I completely detest, is now becoming our living hell uh, of a reality. And because the strategic competition and the nature of how bad the bilateral relationship became, China now needs to oppose everything the U.S. supports on principle, and that it has the opportunity to tarnish the international image of a strategic rival who also happens to be Israel's most important ally. Mm. Then it can use Israel as like the famous Chinese saying that pointing at the harab tree and swearing at the locust, right? These are whataboutisms, and these are in the face of U.S. accusations of the genocidal human rights violations uh, China commits in Xinjiang against the Muslim population, China can have the Palestinian President Abbas come in June and sign a strategic partnership. And remember, the Palestinians' plight is uh, compared sometimes with that of the Uyghurs. Mm -hmm. So on the first paragraph of the strategic agreement, Abbas says that Xinjiang is not about human rights. It's about countering terrorism and fighting radicalism and counter secessionism. So for China, having the Arab world support its core interests, it needs to have something in return to show for. And over the years, this latent equation was created that both the Arab world, the Muslim world, support China on its core interest, which is Xinjiang, first and foremost. And they send their delegates to Xinjiang to Potemkin tours to see how a beautiful land it is, a wonderful land Xinjiang is. And in return, China needs to continue its just dogmatic support of the Palestinians, even when they commit abhorrent, inhumane terrorist acts, because there's no alternative. There's no way for China to do otherwise. Mm. Because for all the 57 members of the Organization of Islamic Countries, maybe a handful, they denounced and condemned the terrorist attacks. You had the UAE saying that they're completely disgusted with what they saw in Hamas terrorism. And now China thinks that that's beside the point. The point is that the fundamental reason this conflict started, and they call it a conflict and not a war or a terrorist attack, is because of America and Western colonialism. Because America is fanning the flames. Because America has seen that China is making headway in the Middle East. China, in March, brokered successfully a detente between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So the U.S. started to feel that someone is moving its cheese. 
and fearing for its hegemony. And because the U.S. has started to withdraw and pivot to the Indo-Pacific from the Middle East, then it needed to instigate a war. And this war would enable it to further entrench itself in the Middle East. It will enable it to form a strategic military bloc against Iran. And most importantly, it will enable the U.S. to curb and harm and counter and do anything possible to curb China's rise in the Middle East. And as the icing on the cake, the military-industrial complex of America, the same one that is profiting from the war in Ukraine and wishing and pushing policymakers to fight until the last Ukrainians, again, these are all Chinese talking points that are very well honed down. So this muscle memory kicks in. It took him less than a day to say all that. And I, I was just really shocked with the speed, but it, it just word for word. I even said that Wang Yi is going to come up with a four-point plan, and the, day ne the next day he actually did. And it, it's just really ridiculous. But, but it, it's not funny because people are dying. People are suffering. And China now with its global ambition... We know from the Belt and Road Initiative, but over the two years with its uh, global initiatives, by definition global, the Global Development Initiative, Global Security Initiative, and Global Civilization Initiative, and they released a white paper wishing to reform global governance. This is a country that has shown us, they have shown the world, that they do not disdain from the Taliban, they do not disdain from Putin and his barbaric acts in Ukraine. Mm. And now with Syria and Assad that visited uh, China last month. And with Israel, this is just one piece of the puzzle. It's a very easy one to fit into this puzzle because the writing was on the wall. It's just so easy to see. And when Assad came to Beijing, I, I wrote an article, which I called it the GSI, right? As we know, it's the Global Security Initiative. But I said, this is a global shield of impunity because China is a country that would do all this. And while we are counting our dead here and 200 bodies cannot be recognized because of the mutilation they pass, uh, the Palestinians did to them, as we speak, it's still ongoing. China is on a tour of bashing Israel and siding with our enemies just for Xinjiang and core interest and cynical political TV, interest. Yeah, and what Wanyi said and what the Chinese official narrative has been saying is that, you know, they're cautioning Israel to show restraint, that civilian lives must be protected on both ends, that they condemn any loss of life, but that they don't explicitly condemn Hamas, as you say. But how do you feel about the Western nations who are reportedly also advising restraint on the Israeli government? I mean, do you think that... They have a point. You know, I've been working around the clock, like most of my Israelis, on defending our home. So we don't watch TV. Uh, the only time we stopped and listened to a world leader was definitely not for Xi Jinping because he hasn't spoken up yet with his global initiatives and sagacity. He hasn't said a word about this. He, he's, he hasn't even called the families of the abducted Chinese. But we stopped and listened to Biden. And at our darkest hour, we saw that the open societies of this world, they spoke up in defense of Israel because this is, wasn't an attack on Israel. This was an attack on humanity itself. And 
citizens of over 40 countries now are part of the victims. There are still many of them, either dual citizens or foreign citizens that are abducted and who knows what kind of horrors are suffering right now. And yeah, so they have some leaders talking about restraint and concern, and I don't care about them. They are irrelevant, just like China is irrelevant. And I wish China were neutral and irrelevant because... But the Americans have been reported to behind the scenes be you saying to Netanyahu's government, show restraint. I, I hear what you're saying about Biden's comments and Blinken obviously also visited to show support. But it does seem like when it comes to the counteraction against Gaza, many Western open countries have also been warning for restraint. They've been calling for restraint, maybe. But but first, I need to reject that. I didn't see this report behind the scenes. I need to see this. But what I did see is the most pro-Israeli, pro-Zionist mm-hmm. speech that I ever heard in my lifetime by any leader, let, let alone American leader, which came from Biden. And we have their full backing. And they sent two aircraft carriers. And they've been sending troops here and paramedics. And when... I think the restraint that is said is referring to international laws of war, uh, which he said also in his speech. And as an Israeli, I also appreciate that because we are not like our enemies. And we understand that fighting a war also has its laws. Mm. And this is just a different category than what China has done, because China has not been calling for restraint. It's been actively siding with our enemy. And propagating its talking points. And when you see the demonization of Israel right now in official party state media by officials in China that are dehumanizing Jews, that are diminishing suffering of Jews, this was the largest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust on a single day. And you cannot just compare China to that of the rest of the world just because uh, countries call for restraint. I also call for my country uh, for restraint and protecting civilians because we're not like our enemies. So I don't think this is a right comparison. Mm. I want to pick up on something you said about the numbers game, China's friendship and alliances with the Arab and with the Muslim worlds in general. I think that detente that China brokered between Saudi Arabia and Iran took a lot of people by surprise. felt like a watershed moment where China's relationship with the Middle East was not just about trade and energy security and military alliances anymore, but something more. They were taking much more diplomatic and uh, almost a global policeman role, at least kind of dipping their toes into that. How do you think that approach, you know, do you think that will last given the Israel-Palestine conflict at the moment? Because, you know, it's something that the US has found that the Middle East is an absolute quagmire. And China so far in its foreign policy has tried to go for win-win cooperation, which means getting Chinese companies businesses, getting Chinese economy boosted, external outlets for its steel overcapacity. But earlier this year, it tried to take a diplomatic leadership role. But it looks from this last week, it's shrinking back from that responsibility again. So I think Israel, as always, is a special case. But but first, I need to correct uh, that China doesn't have military alliances here in the Middle East. And traditionally, its most important interest here was energy, trade, infrastructure investment, but mostly energy before anything else. Last year was over 50% of China's energy imports came from the Middle East. 
So, of course, that was the highest priority. But with the Belt and Road Initiative now uh, marking 10th anniversary and hundreds of billions of dollars in investment later, the Middle East is still important for China. And it was able to diversify an interest here uh, across the board almost, and not just trade and energy, but also in the digital sphere with its digital Silk Road and the health Silk Road with uh, vaccine manufacturing and uh, cold storage and also in the space Silk Road with satellite and space exploration. And the green Silk Road with China, the biggest manufacturer of solar panels and wind energy and nuclear facilities. China and, and of course, EV market where China controls the entire supply chain. China has been positioned itself to a point where it was able to weave or dovetail the way China describes it, its own development strategy with that of local countries. So here they have Saudi Vision 2030 and uh, Egypt Vision 2030 and Qatar 2040 and all these very ambitious and sometimes megalomaniac strategies for development. And they look at China and they see a country that does not have colonial baggage and it does not interfere in internal affairs and a small asterisk, unless it's about Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Tibet, but it does not interfere in internal affairs. And also it does not concern itself with human rights. And it offers all these great goodies, its development, its prosperity, and its civilizational ties and honor and regalia. And they're anti-Western. And the region has very good reasons to hate the West and the US in particular after the war on terror. And using all this leverage, Chinese analysts and policymakers been listening to regional countries telling them China needs to step up its game and become more involved even in security. Even uh, President Obama speaking to Thomas Friedman back in 2014, he said that China was a freeloader and it needs to become more involved in security. Mm. And with the acrimony and the ever-escalating ties between China and the U.S., I just put myself in the shoes of a Chinese general and I look at the map and I see 50% of my energy flows through these three choke points that are held by my strategic rival that uh, describe me as the greatest threat or challenge for the 21st century. What would I do? I would invest to develop more than just trade and investment, but also political ties and party-to-party -party ties and people-to-people -people ties. And I work my hardest to tarnish this enemy standing in this region and undermine everything that it holds dear and undermine its security architecture. And little by little, we're just kind of gnawing and undermining it while we build our own abilities and own efforts. And we're showing that the region that we matter and we're indispensable. And once the ground is ready, the weapons will start to flow and the military cooperation would increase and diplomatically too, China would become more involved. And it really did shock the world. And even people sitting in China that focus on the Middle East, they uh, confessed that they hadn't seen this coming because this was unprecedented. China brokering the tan between two conflicting parties in the Middle East, in the U.S. so-called backyard. And, uh, you know, true, this was mostly heavy lifting by uh, Qatar and Iraq. And, but still, China crossed the ribbon and it took the photo finish. And it's been just 
playing on that ever since. Since March, I've been just reading before this war, every single day, Chinese analysts say that this wave of reconciliation in the Middle East between all these conflicting parties starting to talk with one another, with Syria joining the Arab League once more, and Iran talking with Saudi Arabia, and, and he's talking with that, and everyone's talking with everyone. And they look at themselves and they say, look what we did. This is the Global Security Initiative in action. This is us with our Chinese solution, Chinese wisdom, providing an alternative to the U.S.-led Western hegemonic Cold War mentality and a rule of the jungle of block politics. And we showed the world that there is a better way, an alternative way, the Chinese way. So all this high from this success, I think, really got into China's head a bit. It also helped that uh, they were completely isolated from the world for almost three years. So I can't even begin to imagine the media sphere and the echo chambers that they had there, uh, which could also explain some of what we're reading and seeing now about Israel and Hamas. Uh, 98%, by the way, of Chinese netizens that took like an informal poll on Weibo, it's like 40,000 people responded, said that uh, 98% they see Palestinians as the victim and 2% the Israelis, uh, which I found a pretty interesting figure because it, it made me remember that in March this year, another 98% of Chinese citizens said in a state poll that they believe Chinese democracy is better than the West. So, you know, it's it just these little things of life. But uh, that's beside the point. China now is the big peace broker of the Middle East and thinks now that it can mediate peace between even Israel and the Palestinians. That's something that they've been symbolically engaging through a special envoy since 2002. That was their first. And then they, over the decade where Xi Jinping came to power in 2013, he proposed his first four-point plan, which is boilerplate nonsense that is completely meaningless. And there were a couple others that came after that. Then China held four peace symposiums in Beijing, inviting insignificant Israelis and Palestinians that didn't even want to take a picture together. But I remember this, the Israeli one, there's a, a com commentary about him that he lost um, the opportunity to vote in parliament for a user's trip abroad. That's how they describe it. So in September last year, China held the second security uh, forum for the Middle East held by the foreign ministry think tank. And Wang Yi was the guest of honor uh, and his deputy. And then he unveiled China's new security architecture for the Middle East. That's the name. No less. Half of which is the Gulf and Iran, and the other half is Israel and the Palestinians. And China is a permanent member of the UN Security Council, right? It's the second largest economy. It's a friend of Israel, or so we thought. And it's now, by coincidence, also the head of the UN Human Rights Council. And for years, it's been making all these Chinese solutions and Chinese wisdom, showing that it wants to be a major, responsible, major power. that wants to be involved in peacemaking. And Xi Jinping himself, he said that we need to move closer to the world center stage. Guess what, buddy? You're in the center. The limelight is on you. And the curtain has raised and you need to act. And we saw how China has been acting ever since. On the same day, the same minutes. An Israeli family diplomat is stabbed in the capital in Beijing on the same day. It's a Friday where Hamas, while committing 
terrorist attacks against our country. It tries to rile up the Muslim world against Israel. And, and remember, this is not about anti-Zionism. This is not about anti-Israel. This is why they murdered this poor Asian man in that video. It's al-Yahudi, a Jew. And this is China. And where does this leave China's ambitions in the Middle East then, especially from the Israeli perspective? I suspect your government feels much the same as you do, that the mask has slipped for China. Can Sino-Israel relations ever go back to what they were? So over the last 10 days, even though China's been still using the same talking points about uh, another round of conflict between two parties and both sides suffering, they really don't understand what happened here and what happened for Israelis right now. Mm. The most ultra-leftist Israelis out there, they are now calling to flatten the Gaza Strip because one of theirs was abducted. Others were raped and murdered and their families killed. And China's still talking about both sides and what about isms. And, and, and I, I don't think they really understand. That's why I suggest them to come here and live through, step into our nightmare to better understand that the region has changed. The Middle East is not going to be the same from now on. And they need to understand that. And Israel's approach to China is never going to be the same because at our darkest hour, that darkest time, when Xi Jinping talks about sharing will and woe and terrorism, the enemy of mankind, it appears that mankind doesn't include Jews. For a country that is so obsessed with sovereignty and territorial integrity, it has shown nothing but sheer hypocrisy of the umpteenth level that there's no word in any language that I know that can describe. And again, this cynicism, something that we already know as China researchers, we, the, the most popular newsletter is called Cynicism for this reason. So I read the book, talk about Tiananmen. So I've seen the movie, which is Ukraine, but now I'm living it. I'm living the story myself. And I don't think Israel relations with China will be the same, not until Xi Jinping goes away. Tuvia Gurin, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for making time. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.